Jensen presents the Keith Lowell Jensen Show with Keith Lowell Jensen. Hey, here I am, Keith Lowell Jensen, just like uh, just like the voice said. There's no lies in our theme song. We promise you Keith Lowell Jensen, and I tell you what, you're going to get all the Keith Lowell Jensen you got coming. And I'm going to start like I always do by thanking the sponsor. Thank you to Burley Beverages. Here's the thing, man. More Radio DJs are so cheesy with their like, and I actually get a good night's sleep on this mattress every night, myself personally, and, and I hate it. But I'm so excited about our sponsor because we're a small thing. And I went to a friend and said, does your company want to sponsor us? Because Burley Beverages, they're my buddies. And we're always at, whenever there's a weird event in Sacramento, uh, I get invited and they get invited. That's both of our niche is weirdo events. Like like if there's like a, a plea for peace, poetry reading or whatever, I'll be the one comedian on the bill. Uh, the last time I remember working with them, the artist after me had like metal sparks flying all over the place while they were performing. And the artist before me was a fashion show. So always if it's a weird event, they're there making beverages. I love them. But I want to bring my producer Joe on because Joe finally got to do something today that I've been encouraging him to do. Joe, you went down to the Burley Beverages tasting room. Yeah, I did. Is that place amazing or what? Uh, yeah, I was uh, pleasantly surprised. I remember the the building itself was a hot dog shop when I lived in that part of town. And it's an interesting part of town. So for people that aren't from Sacramento, Del Paso Heights was like kind of a cool destination at one time with an ice skating rink and movie theaters and everything. It was like a hip, you know, you, you go to the boulevard. And I'm talking way back, what, like 50s, 60s? Was it starting to go to pot by the 60s? <laughs> uh so now it's run down and the city keeps saying they're going to revitalize it. And so art galleries move in and try to gentrify it and fail, which, you know, is maybe good. <laughs> like, like I'd like it to keep getting cool stuff like Gabe without becoming anyway, <laughs> it's a whole can of worms, but there he is right across the street from the, the boxing gym. And, uh, there's a, yep. always a liquor store within a stone's throw away. And yep. the dude's into it. He's an artist, right? Like didn't he? Oh, he made yeah. you a drink while you were there. Oh yeah, he and and canned it, put it in a a regular, like a can. I took it home and opened it just like a soda. Oh, because because he does. He has a canning <laughs> a device now, and he's doing canning. Yeah. And he was like shaving fresh ginger and everything, right? Oh yeah. While I was there, they they were processing ginger, and there must have been I don't know how much like huge like buckets full of ginger fresh ginger to make their ginger beer yeah so these guys aren't messing around they're they're really awesome i love them i'm super excited to have them uh as a sponsor you can get 15 percent off of your order at the burley tasting room on del paso boulevard but you can also just go to uh, burleybeverages.com and type in the discount code klj rules all written as one word all caps with a z instead of an s at the end klj that's keith Ol jensen klj rules and uh, and then you'll get 15% off or or we're going to just give you some stuff. How about that? Uh, Joe, Joe buttered him up, really softened him up. And so next week we're going to do a giveaway. And the dude's crazy. We're like, we'll give away a couple of sodas. And he's like, well, we should give away a soda stream, too, so they can make one. Or maybe we'll give him some copper cups. What's the drink you drink in copper cups, Joe? Mojito. He wants to do a whole mojito kit giveaway, so which we'll, would be like his syrups and some copper mugs and everything to make mojitos except for the booze. So we're going to figure out what we're going to do, and then we'll tell you how to win that. 
And then after that, we'll probably do another one. And we're going to give away some of their stuff. So listen and watch for that. That starts next week. I know we've been teasing you with it for a while, but we just had to get our stuff together to make it happen. We figured out how we're going to make it happen. Uh, Joe, thank you. It's always nice talking to you, and I appreciate all the hard work you do to make this podcast happen. I'm just the guy who talks a lot. Uh, For sure. Yeah. So uh, if you're listening at home, you can support us by subscribing and uh, leaving a review. That really helps uh, tip the algorithms in our favor. Of course, it helps us a lot if you go visit our sponsor. Um, Hit us on all your social medias. I'll give a list of those at the end. And one person in Australia, we get, we've get we got downloads from all over the world now, but one every episode, one person downloads in Australia. Say hello to me. I want to know who you are. I, are you my niece? I have a niece in Australia. Cheyenne, is that you? Uh, let me hear from you and tell your friends. I, next week, I want to get two downloads from Australia. So, uh, you know, go, go over to your... Um, Cheyenne, if it's you, go to, go to your girlfriend's computer and download us from there, too. That way we'll see, too. Uh, <laughs> but if it's anyone else, tell a friend. Um, so cool. So now we come to my guest. And so excited about my guest because he's a, just an awesome musician and filmmaker. Uh, I actually spent all day rewatching his uh, totally awesome documentary. But let me go ahead and give you his official bio. Corbett Redford is known in some circles as a singer, a filmmaker, an author, and an actor. He's currently living in the very suburban hometown of his, Pinole, California, after 15 years of existing within the art and music warehouse communities of Oakland. Uh, He has performed on and off with his band Bobby Joe Ebola and the Children McNuggets since uh, 1995. The band has self-released four full-length albums, numerous EPs, two books. Two books! Yeah, the band has put out two books, 13 music videos, and a live album with Rooftop Comedy. Kind of broaching into my territory there. In uh, (laughs) 2017, Corbett directed and produced the documentary Turn It Around, the story of East Bay Punk, which is an awesome, inspiring film. Narrated by Iggy Pop, because this actually was a law passed that you're not allowed to make a punk rock documentary without Iggy Pop any longer. Executive produced by Green Day, those sellouts. Uh, joking, joking. He is currently working on a handful of exciting new projects while navigating his day job and chasing his six-year-old son, Rex, in his spare time. He enjoys taking in anything that has to do with the Marvel Studios, Bernie Sanders, The Mandalorian, poop jokes, which is why he gets along good with his kid, anthropomorphism, and ending white supremacy. Awesome. Corbett, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, dude, such a pleasure. I I had such a good time when I was writing my book, Punching Nazis and Other Good Ideas. Uh, My friend Aaron Carnes, the author of In Defense of Ska, who was also one of our first guests on this podcast, introduced me to you. And you were so generous. Uh, Hopefully it was a a pleasure for you also, because I know when you're editing, it's it's like, you know, having to say goodbye to one of your children when you have to cut an awesome scene. And you had cut together this whole scene with all these different people talking about when the East Bay punks came to Sacramento and got beat up by Nazis. Yeah. And we had to cut it out of the movie. It was just not, not for any particular reason other than, you know, the movie is already almost three hours long. Right. <laughs> it's a long so. movie. And so you generously let me pretty much recreate that scene in my book. A couple yeah. of the people interviewed gave me access to, uh, or gave me permission to keep using their name, other ones did not. Ben Sizemore. <laughs> uh, ben Sizemore was really cool. Yeah. yeah. He, he really, he, he was definitely, I think, a voice back then in that scene who was 
always anti-Nazi, uh, always willing to punch a skinhead. And I still think, you know, he's a union guy these days. And I think that that carries on in his life, you know, and his yeah. legacy even. Well, it's funny when I first wrote him, he wrote me back and he's like, let me think about it. And then it's almost like he beat himself up for it because then he wrote me back. He said, what the fuck am I talking about? Of course you can use it. Like, with, <laughs> right. like he did. He like apologized for having to think about it. He's like, right. <laughs> how am I? I said some things, use them, go at it. Uh, so he's a great guy. Uh, he, he seemed really cool. And I think I'm friends with him on Facebook now. So, Yay. um, <laughs> I want to start by asking you about something that's reflected in the movie a little bit, but also I, I want to know about your childhood and your upbringing. Sure. You depict an area of the East Bay that we don't hear about. Everybody thinks about the East Bay, uh, East San Francisco Bay area, for those of you that are further away. Um, and they think about Berkeley and they think about Oakland. Uh, what they don't think about is the outer reaches, places like Pinole. And places where you have a lot of rednecks, a lot of uh, arkies and okies and skinheads. And um, so what was what was growing up like for you in a Bay Area that looked very different than what people are picturing in their mind right now when we say East Bay? You know, it's so strange because, I mean, we're not but on a good day, 20 minutes from, you know, the center of knowledge that is Berkeley. But it, it really feels like another world sometimes, you know? Uh, so I, I come from West Contra Costa County, which is Pinole, El Sobrante, um, Rodeo, Crockett, kind of little triumph, triumvirate here. Uh, right. it, it's, it's, uh, it's so hard to describe, but I, I think uh, Martin from Sam I Am and Isocracy in our film describes it as like a sliver of Kansas. And that right. is really accurate. Uh, one thing I knew growing up here was that the same bands over the course of three decades, uh, Metallica, uh, Kirk Hemet from Metallica, the guys from Primus, Les and Lair, and the guys from Green Day, all got beat up by the same kind of Peckerwood white supremacist gangs. Right. Uh, in in that in El Sobrante, in this region, and you know, Pinole is a little more um, it fancies itself New Hampshire, but it still has its its uh, its kind of backwards tendencies too. Uh, you know, I live here now. I mean, I ran screaming from here when I was a teenager. There's no Bart that comes here. So you got to kind of create your own culture in a bubble, you know. Uh, but I came back here thinking, oh, it'll be a good place to, you know, raise a kid, you know. <laughs> but doesn't doesn't that also kind of inform and influence the art that forms there? I, I, I mean, I'm from Sacramento. And so there's a couple of things. There's one, you have the loyal opposition. I mean, having those assholes around really helps you to kind of be anti-asshole yeah. <laughs> in a way that's yeah. very real and not just theatric. Um, and then two, I think we benefit from having a little bit of a chip on our shoulder. I know Sacramento comedians and we have an amazing comedy scene and a lot of it is, I think there's a chip on the shoulder between, and I don't know if other Sacramento comedians would agree with me, but there's a chip on our shoulder between us and San Francisco. We have something to prove. Hmm. Doesn't that kind of help you guys, you think, as artists, sort of form your identity? Yeah. I mean, we're not affected by by scenes. There's no scene out here, you know? So right. you're, you're, you're really, uh, the art and the culture that you make out here, like you said, like, you hate racists, not for performative reasons, but because they're your neighbors. And they know? beat you up. 
and they beat you up, you know, and they throw <laughs> you in lockers and they, you know, I mean, the, the whole thing was, was happening growing up and it wasn't just that they would beat on, you know, uh, ethnic folks or black folks. They would also beat on long haired, you know, hippie looking or punk kids, you know, grimy kids, anyone who didn't, who didn't kind of, uh, the, the, it's a class thing too, I guess. Uh, yeah. it, it, it really, no, I'm proud. I'm proud that I, I, I came from here and yeah, I think, you know, people can, you know, talk all their dense intellectualism, you know, with their professor parents, you know, coming from Berkeley. I'm glad <laughs> that I got a, a common voice, uh, you know, and then I had to learn, I did have to learn a lot of lessons going out into the larger world that it wasn't okay to say certain things. And, you know, like when you are in these bubbles, you are sometimes, you know, you have a lot to learn about the world. Yeah. Yeah. I had two friends from Tallahassee, Florida, and they, they came first to the Bay area and then to Sacramento on a big road trip of theirs. And this is, they're a gay couple and yet yeah. they were constantly getting in trouble for the homophobic slurs that they would use. And they were like, we're allowed to say that. God damn it. <laughs> they, they, sh- they should be allowed to say it. I mean, they that's should their, be. That's their but thing. It, was, yeah, yeah. it was so funny to me, them coming from a community where there was the sense of taking back that word and then coming to a place that maybe was uh, at that time at the, at the point of no, we're going to kill that word. <laughs> right. Sure. And I'm, sure. I, uh, but that whole thing of like going out and confronting in the bigger world, you know, uh, the, the difference between that and, and where you're from. Not not that, I mean, Tallahassee has its fair share of culture. There's a couple of colleges there, and but it sure. still has that that small town thing. Uh, I remember it was funny because they were like, why is the word queer okay? And the word huh. faggot isn't. And right. I was like, I, I don't, I'm, you're asking the wrong guy. I don't get to give you permission to say these words. I think <laughs> as if far you're as I'm gay, concerned, you can say both, you know? I, yeah. I was like, when you're in my house, I'm not going to correct you, whatever you want to call yourself. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so you're asking the wrong feller. Uh, but no, there's a, there's a scene in your movie where one of the, the musicians from in the further reaches talks about that, where he's like, now looking back respects sort of the rules of Gilman street. Um, but at the time was like, why are they telling me I can't say stuff? I don't, I want to say stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. You know, there there was out here, I guess, you know, the the words you say when you're a a teenage boy who wasn't raised by, I don't know, uh, uh, like thoughtful, progressive, intellectual people, you know, you were, raised on motorcycles and hamburger helper. And, and you kind of, you, you, I don't know, you get out into the 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 larger world, especially like when we got into the Gilman scene, it was like there, it was nice because at the time there were people that were like gentle enough to like, let us learn, you know, as opposed to immediately casting us out. I love that. I love that because the difference between someone like you're describing who comes into the scene from outside of the scene is, is maybe an openness to learning. And then if you show up and you're a Nazi skinhead and you just want to mess everything up, yeah, that takes a different (laughs) approach. (laughs) No quarter for that. Yeah. Right. But, but yeah, the kids that are just dumb kids, cool. There should be a place for them to grow. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. I mean, there's that there, there is, I mean, what was it? Somebody had told a story during the making of the film that, there was a skinhead kid that came into Gilman one night and he was kind of, they, they said, look, you, you can't wear that jacket in here. It has these symbols on it. If you take the jacket off and you leave it outside or you leave it at the door, you can come in. 
Turns out by the end of the night, he wasn't hurting people. He had kind of, he had kind of in some ways saw that he could be accepted. And I don't know what the end of the story was, if he like changed his, you know, uh, disgusting ways, but you know, there's also something to be said about, about the idea that even the most evil of us can change, but yeah, somebody who has, you know, uh, come to blows with, with skinheads and Nazis many times in my life. I also, I have a, a visceral reaction when I see them and I like automatically want to fight them. <laughs> right. So, but the best non- Nazi punch of all is to take their children, to convert their children. That's, oh, <laughs> if yeah. you can do that, Ooh, that really hurts them. <laughs> Very much so. Then they can't continue on in the world, you know? Uh, right. <laughs> right. Let me back you up a little bit. You and I right away just started talking about Gilman Street, and Gilman's pretty central to your documentary. How would you explain what Gilman Street is to people from outside of that scene that maybe the only thing they know about Gilman is Green Day and Operation Ivy? What is your like elevator pitch explanation of what the Gilman Street Project is? I'd say it's a, uh, it's a collective music and art performance venue that was started in 1986. And it is uh, collectively run. There are uh, volunteer meetings on the, the first and third Saturdays of every month. And it's it's all volunteer run. It's a nonprofit. Uh, there are certain rules. No drinking, uh, no sexism, no racism, no hom- homophobia, no transphobia. I believe one of, them, one of the rules now is no dogs because the sound can hurt the dog's ears, which I okay. appreciate. Um, but yeah, you know, and... I think when it first emerged, the the early punk scene was like, wait, punk with rules? What are you talking about? You know, I can't drink. What is this? You know? Yeah. Um, But I think it's actually a testament to its longevity. Here we are, you know, what, now over 30 years? And and there, it's still there, you know? Uh, Right. It's, it's, I'll say this, uh, during my many years volunteering there, uh, it isn't easy when everybody has a voice, I guess. Uh, it, it, you know, you, you go to these meetings and the old joke is you're, you're, you're voting on, on when we're going to vote, you know, <laughs> like, right, right. You know, uh, but I think that the outcomes are always far better when you have more input, you know, and no matter how the, you know, the, the, no matter that there's a lot of difficulty to get to, a, you know, your final outcome, uh, it's hard. It's hard work uh, working with other people, but uh, it's also very rewarding. So I, I got to perform there for the first time a couple of years ago with Narboots. Nice. And I have been following Gilman Street and the, the legend of Gilman Street since I was a little boy, since I was like 14 or so. Uh, what a cool, I mean, they treated me so well. You're treated with respect. Uh and the rules are so logical. They make sense. And they're just all clearly written on the wall when you walk in. I love that. You walk in and there it is immediately. No homophobia, right. no transphobia, no racism, sexism. That's the best. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, if, if only we could have a, you know, that plastered in our sky, you know, like <laughs> to, where, to where everyone could see that and just know that those, are the, those were the rules, you know. That's the stuff we need on billboards. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to ask you just for some personal greatest hits from the documentary and, and the documentary is turn it around, uh, the story of East Bay punk. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, 
I love punk rock documentaries and specifically ones that are scene oriented. I just watched one recently about uh, the DC scene. This one is didn't just fill that need, but it's it's well made, Corbett. It, it I you. love what you did with the video effects because so much of the footage came from VHS. You you leaned into that instead of. Do you know what we did though with that? Just uh, that when you see the old VHS effect and then it goes into an interview with somebody that with right. that looks like a VHS effect on the interview. Right. We actually filmed every one of the 185 interviews with a VHS camera. You're kidding me. No, we did. And, and so none You're of just a glutton for punishment. Yeah, well, you know, we, we had very patient cinematographers and, and uh, digital archivists who would transfer all of this stuff. Cause it obviously it had to go to digital, but uh, right. yeah, it, we, we really tried to make it, um, think of it like a zine i guess you know there was a lot of hands-on kind of uh, effects and things like that put into it so and it's almost three hours long so you know right (laughs) and and yet i want more i want the director's cut i want the sacramento scene in (laughs) oh wow i you know i have a really fun i have a i have a large fondness for the sacramento scene going there playing there growing up uh i just was it was always just so vibrant people were so supportive and happy and I don't know. I mean, I know you've seen the good and the bad living there, but uh, I have always thought you have a great scene there. I, I've stayed here. I think so too. But yeah. like I talked about earlier, there's that loyal opposition. We have those skinheads that beat up Green Day when they came. We have, you know, we have our problems, and sure. and I love it. I the good people here that stand up to that are just such wonderful people. Uh, Absolutely. But, uh, tell me about. A girl gang called DMR. Oh my gosh, I was so scared. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, I I I start interviewing people, and I hear that there was this girl gang, who were also promoters who would put on shows, but that there was a a cabal of about starting starting with four girls, and then it kind of got to about ten girls, who were the most brutal. They would they would fight skinheads. They would fight uh, just anyone who crossed you know looked at them in a weird crossway. Uh, they were the most scary gang in in the East Bay and in San Francisco in the kind of mid to late nineties. Uh, and it, to me, I thought it was like a really like a, this cultural anthropological. Uh, it was thought it was interesting in that regard. Like you hear about these gangs and stuff, but you don't you don't really hear about this girl gang who everyone was like seriously uh, kind of, they were just scared of, you know? Uh, so I thought I needed to get them interviewed and I reached out to all, or to, I reached out to three of them. I believe we wound up getting two of them in the film and uh, they were, they were great and supportive. You know, uh, it, you know, I, I kept thinking they were going to sock me like, like in that pepper, <laughs> peppermint patty kind of way, you know, right. uh, or, or that Lucy kind of way, you know, but, um, no, it, 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 it really, I think fat Mike says it in our film. He, he says, you know, what is that? Like, I, you know, the, the, the most scary gang in the East Bay was a bunch of girls and it was yeah. the truth. It was the truth. I love it. And, and it started kind of out of necessity. They, they mentioned that one girl had, I think they said the youngest person that the uh, girl that they hung out with had been raped. Yeah, they, and then, they said that, that that was the the core. The core was that she was walking home alone, and then they made a rule: no one walks home alone after that. Right, and, that's and they, they started kind of, recognizing the the power yeah. of numbers. 
Yeah, and then they became this force. You know, not only right. booking, they 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 did a lot of shows with Wes Robinson, who is like you know it could be called the godfather of of East Bay punk. With right. with Ruthies, he started the the thrash scene. Um, they they did a lot of promoting with him, and they brought a lot of fantastic bands uh, to the area. So that's something they're not really known that well known for. Uh, but mostly, it's just that you know. If there was, <laughs> you, you didn't cross them or, or you would be crossed out. <laughs> um, and I, I went to CL7 here in Sacramento. Nice. And it was at a time when skinheads were ruining shows. You know, I, the same night that Green Day got in that fight, I was at a different club seeing a social distortion and the skinheads were ruining it. And then they all left. And I didn't find out until years later that the reason they left is that they all went to go fight <laughs> Green Day. <laughs> yeah. How did that happen? They didn't have cell phones. Did like one of them run all the way there yeah. or something? Yeah. Some, someone had to drive over to the cattle club and be like, hey, man, shit's going down at Clooney Hall. And it could have went in the other direction. It could have been, you know, Mike right. Ness is talking smack to us over at Cattle Club. You know? <laughs> but so I go see L7 and all the skinheads show up. And I'm like, oh, my God, why? You uh. know? And those women were picking them up by their belts and tossing them out the door. That and I'm just beautiful. sitting there going, that's how you do it. That's yeah. how you do it. it was, and who knows? It could have been some of the DMR women. I wouldn't be surprised if they would drive in from the East no, Bay no, to absolutely, see L7. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. Uh, you you got to applaud that. That is just one of the most culturally awesome things I think I've ever heard. Oh, I loved it. Uh Tell me about, okay, so there's some debate in the film on whether or not the war wagon was real or not. What do you uh, think? Well, I, I Did think you hear was, about it from more than one source? Yeah, no, I absolutely. And I actually tracked down where the the hole was. It, it actually existed. And it was you, actually- Wait, wait, you found the war wagon? I actually found the, 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 the actual, the actual um, what were they called? Next phase. And I'm forgetting the other name of the, the group. Uh, it was, oh God, why am I forgetting this? There was two gangs that kind of morphed out of each other. And one of them was called the next phase. And that was the okay. second one, obviously. But I actually tracked down a lot of the members of that gang. Are they and, still racist jerks? Well, so it was really interesting because I, I started writing them on Facebook and I was like, Hey, we're doing this thing. You know, it's about the history of the local area, you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, and they, and I said, we're, we're interested in, you know, the, 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 the gang that, you know, and stuff. And I started, they started sending me pictures. So that picture the, the, the animation of the war wagon in our film is actually based on a picture that we received. And oh wow, their, their leader was named Grinch. <laughs> and, and it turned out Grinch had the, the hull of the war wagon at the bottom of the hill uh, of where I first came home when I was a baby, when my parents brought me home. Uh, they brought me home to a, a house on El Centro in El Sobrante. At the bottom of that hill, we found the uh, the old hull of the war wagon. So it did exist. I did appreciate Janelle Hessig's uh, comment in our film that you know that they that they're 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 just, they're lying. You know, a bunch of old men talk telling these tall tales. <laughs> right, right. We we put that in there to kind of take the piss out of the the tall tale. You know, and I thought it was very funny. She's fantastic. A, a great uh, publisher. Uh, cartoonist, uh, just awesome a drummer. She's so cool. Uh, but yeah, that that uh, the war wagon was real, and it used to chase around Kirk Hemet and Les Claypool and and Mike Durnt and and any any uh, any long hair kid or or 
you know, brown kid or black kid. <laughs> it, 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 it was not a, it was a horrible thing <laughs> as I laugh, you know? Right. Right. Just amazing. Yeah. Uh, so the skinhead issue, they, they started like they would, they would mob the door at Gilman. They would push their way in um, until finally it got to be too much. And where were you? So the, the scene is depicted in the film and I would love to have you describe it. But the first question I want to ask is where were you when it happened? Was Gilman street on your radar already? Were you younger? No, I was, I was younger and I was kind of, I was still out in El Sobrante and I, I wasn't keyed into the whole scene. I actually didn't arrive until all the rest of the posers arrived uh, around after the, <laughs> the, 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 the green day boom, you know? Around, okay. Uh, I, I was keyed into them a little bit earlier. My first show with them was 1992 at the Berkeley square because okay. they went to my high school. So they were, it was more of a, it was more of a, a hometown thing that I right. was aware of them. Uh, and then I, you know, I, it wasn't until around 94, I got familiar with Gilman. So this whole skinhead thing happened, you know, about, you know, at Gilman, I'd say about four years before that. There was the song Skinhead. Right, by, by uh, MPC. Right. S, yeah. because you're stupid. K, yeah. for the KKK. A, because I hate you. Uh, uh, yeah, I, love I, that song. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Skinheads did not. No, it's, and, and Dave really, he goaded them, and uh, they were not into it. One of, uh, one of the things that didn't get into that, that story on, in the film was that two seven foot tall black capoeira dancers with big bow staffs had, had just come down from Ashkenaz down the street from performing. Okay. So they arrived in the middle of the melee that's portrayed in the film and <laughs> joined in and started helping kick the skinheads asses. Oh, that's beautiful. I really wanted to portray that, but it was kind of divergent, you know, and right. It, 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 uh, it uh, yeah, the kids just had enough. They were all, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, broken, scrawny kids who. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. These yeah. are kids that have a reputation for being the the kind of geeky punk rockers who were intellectual and and also kind of political and nerdy. Yeah. So the skinheads really felt like this was shooting fish in a barrel. They showed up to have some fun. Yeah, and they got kids, quite a yeah. surprise. Yeah, absolutely. These kids, if you look at the, the most of the photos of early Gilman, they're kids in like, you know, like Mervyn's clothes and, you know, they're, right. they're, they're not, they're not wearing any kind of uh, costume or, or there's a couple spiky kids, you know, or whatever, but, but most of them just like, like dumpy suburbanites, you know? <laughs> and uh, yeah, they, they thought that they could come in and just, just, just wreak havoc. And they were greeted with, a bunch of angry kids with, you know, picking up chairs, doing anything they could. And they, uh, the, the Kamala parks tells the story that they arrived in this big brand new, uh, red pickup truck. Right. And which was completely demolished as it, it drove away. Uh, as she says, fuck all back to Concord, uh, <laughs> you know, which offends uh, some people, uh, from Concord. Uh, I always have to answer that you know, in Q and A's and online people are like, I like the movie, but you made fun of 
of Concord, you know? <laughs> oh, that's like, so funny. When I hear stuff like that about Sacramento, I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I just like, I know it, it, it gets hot here and, and the skinheads like the heat here, you know? Right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Aaron Comet bus. Yeah. Is it was neat getting to hear more about him and, and his origin and what a scene kid he was. Cause I got introduced to him through his writing and through, his his zine and then later as his zine got published in in sort of compilations and stuff i actually bought one of my nephews a big like compendium of comet bus nice the omnibus and and this is a nephew who i'm not saying comet bus did it but i'm comet bus has to have a role in it this is a kid who comes and works in the illegal marijuana industry half the year and spends the other half of the year traveling the world with Wonderful. his marijuana money. And I think, nice. I think I got to him young with Comet Bus. I was like, there's more to life. Go out there and travel, kid. Sure, sure. That sounds like Huey Lewis's story, to, to totally be a poser. Uh, Huey Lewis was going to do, he was going to go to school and he was going to do all these things, but he just decided to travel a whole bunch. I, I'm a big oh, wow. Huey Lewis. Yeah, I'm a... I, I don't know. I, I know we're not talking about Huey Lewis. We're talking about punk, but I'm, I'm a huge Huey fan. You know, he, you know, I, yeah. I you want a new drug is like way more of a pop punk song than yeah. anyone will ever give it credit for being because of his reputation later. But I was there when that yeah. song came out and before yeah. we knew what he looked like and that song, wait, you can't be on the radio saying I want a new drug. I mean, that sure. was as like hardcore as anything we heard on the radio. And I loved it. Well, and then later about, when I saw yeah. him, I was like, wait, that's the guy? That guy? He looks like everybody's dad. He looks like a, he's yeah. perpetually a dad, you know? I, I I always say like when everybody, anybody slams him, I say, uh, he, look, he, he he wore a prosthetic uh, dick in the, the uh, Robert Altman movie Shortcuts with Tom Waits and Lily nice. Tomlin. He did. Uh, uh, I love the, that uh, movie, but I don't remember that. Yeah, he was fishing, and he's the one who pees in the water when they find the dead body <laughs> in the water. And, I'm going back and watching it again just for Huey Lewis's prosthetic yeah. penis. And then and <laughs> his real penis was too big, and it was intimidating. They were exactly. like, "We need you to wear this smaller one." That's the legend. That's the legend. Is and, it really? Uh, I was, it, I'm it making is. a joke. It is. There, there's this. Uh, there, there's an article on Medium that came out a few years back called "Huey Lewis is Fucking Amazing," and, it, and I already knew this, you know. But it talks about how he, uh, what you know, played harmonica on all of uh, uh, on Thin Lizzy, Live and Dangerous, and there's just so many things. Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe uh, discovered him. I mean, it's insane. Oh my god, it's See? insane. Like Huey is the, Huey is the man. Anyways, back to punk, right? Sorry. No, no, wait. I'm, I, I actually don't care if we talk about the movie or your band anymore. No, no, no. <laughs> I might actually, not just this episode, I might actually change the podcast to make it a, a Huey Lewis fan cast now. Hey, please you have me back. Me. Have me back, yeah. <laughs> You're going to be my co-host now. It's Thank done. you very much. <laughs> All right. Aaron Comet Bus. Yes. I love him. And yeah. it was great that he was so present in the documentary. But not present. Including the lettering. Right. But then I couldn't help but notice that he was also not present. What, sure, what's the what, story there? Time magazine calls him the Kerouac of punk, right? He's, this, okay. I don't know. You know, I think he, really, if there was a documentarian before this documentary, it was Murray Bowles, the photographer and Aaron Comet bus, you know, right. Aaron, Aaron early on, he just, I think Dave, Dave Ed from Neurosis says it best. He would make these early punk compilations. And Tim Armstrong talks about it in our film too, where he'd say, oh, you don't have a band? Well, I'm going to put you together 
and you're going to make a band and you're going to be on my compilation. We're right. going, we're going to have a scene. This is like when he's 12 or 13, you know? I love uh, it. Yeah, no. And, and, and then Tim Armstrong's like, Whoa, I'm on this cassette. This is real. I can manifest this. This is like, we can actually do the thing we love doing, you know, that we love listening to. And, and so Aaron was really pivotal, I think for at the birth of East Bay punk, you know, just as much as somebody like Tim Yohannan or, or, uh, you know, Wes Robinson, you know, uh, I think, you know, he, he doesn't, you won't find many interviews with him. He doesn't, I don't think he does podcasts every once in a while. He'll, um, I think, uh, at Cornell, he donated a lot of his, his archive, you know? Um, cool. yeah, but you know, so it was like, I think with a lot of people in this film, you know, not all of them were like rich rock stars. A lot of them, they just, all they had was their sacred stories. I, I say, you know, and, and right. I think it was, you know, 185 interviews. I had to, the joke was that I was the punk whisperer. I had to, <laughs> I, I, I had to really, um, it's not like connive or finesse, but I had to really gain the trust and, and be patient and listen and, and uh, about what was important to all of these people and to Aaron, so much of it was important. So Right. I think he was like, yeah, no, I'll be a part of it and I'll help you. And then it was like, okay, is he going to interview? Is he going to, what he wound up doing was as we would get cuts and everything, he would, he would, he wasn't, he wasn't a historical consultant, like say Kamala Parks or Robert Eggplant or Dave Mello, who were like in the offices with us, okay. but he would kind of give us the larger picture uh, when he would kind of check out what we were doing. And like I said, like you said, you know, he did all the lettering for our film. Uh, he let us film him doing the lettering, you know? So you, you, right. you actually see him at the beginning of each chapter, you know? Uh, it, 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 I think, I hope that we honored him. And, uh, you know, am I, do I regret that he's not in the film? I don't, I don't know. He, uh, he's in it in yeah. a very Aaron Comet bus way. That you said it perfectly. Yeah. So it's kind of yeah. cool. Absolutely. It's it, he, 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 he got to do it the way that he wanted to do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but you know, my personal Aaron comment bus story is that I, I wrote punching Nazis and other yeah. good ideas. Uh, it wasn't a case where I wrote a book and then looked for a publisher, a, a big publisher came to me, a publisher who had also published Roger Stone's book. So I was like, yeah, they come to me and they're like, we, you know, do you, want to write this book, Punching Nazis, because my friend Carrie, Carrie Poppy from uh, Oh No, Ross and Carrie had told them, oh yeah, this guy's got a lot to say about punching Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> so they tell me to write this book and I'm like, oh, shit, I don't know if I have that many words about punching Nazis. So I write the book and a lot of it is stories. It's, it's I think it's it, influenced by two writers, Jeffrey Brown, the graphic novelist and, uh, and Aaron Comibus. And I give it to the woman and I'm like, she's not going to get it. They're going to ask for their advance back or they're going to make me totally <laughs> rewrite it. I mean, I'm a wreck. I'm literally a wreck. And she calls me. And the first thing she says to me is, do you know Aaron Comet Bus? Oh, wow. And I said, not personally, but I'm a huge fan. And she said, this reminds me of his style, but not like in a derivative way. I sure. love it. And I, I'm not kidding you, dude. Tears started streaming down my face. That's when I realized how much stress I had been under for the couple sure. months that I'd been writing it. Sure. But the second she said Aaron's name, I was like, okay, she does get my writing style. 
Oh, that's wonderful. You know what I mean? It's a fantastic book. No, to, to, for somebody to, to to see you like that, that's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Because I thought that she would, there's things that are stylistic that may come across as amateurish if you don't know that I'm aware of what I'm doing. I'm, I'm sure. trying to be very straightforward and to tell the story in a certain way. And as soon as she said that, I was like, oh, she gets it. Yeah, I'm working with an editor who gets it. This is great. <laughs> so you, and you knew you were in the right place for sure. Yeah, the, the minute uh, she said his name. Of course, they fired her before the book even came out. But no. her, her edit survived. Her edit is the one you read. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. It's a great book. That's wonderful. Oh, yeah. So, well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. And you certainly were a huge help in making it happen. It's um, proudly on my shelf. Let's uh, let's talk about Green Day real quick. Sure. I love Green Day. And I got to see Green Day up in Seattle opening for Bad Religion. Nice. After the point where they sh- where Bad Religion should have been opening for them, but I guess it was already booked, and then Green Day blew up. That's so what it was probably like the, even Bad Religion says that they're like there's, yeah. there's a point of that tour when it was like why are we doing this like this? <laughs> it was so much fun, and Bad Religion had uh, what's his name from um, oh my god my mind Seattle grunge the other big band Pearl Jam they had Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam come out on stage with them. I'm seeing one of the biggest rock stars in the world literally get booed off of stage by the audience. I was like, God, God, I love punk rock. (laughs) That is crazy. You saw that was was, peak, man. That must've been a great show. It was so much fun. It was really fantastic. And I, I punched a security guard and ran out the back door. That's how it ended for me. Yeah. He he hit me with his knife for like no reason. Just being a thug. I was like, this is going to be their last song. I'm doing it. And boom. And then my buddy catches up with me and he's like, dude, half that place is looking for you. You need to go. <laughs> nice. This is the I first did. time I've ever admitted publicly that that was me. I'll probably get beat up the next time I go back to Seattle. Somebody will be like, I found out who the guy is. Don't go back to Seattle. <laughs> anyway, I got, I got off on a tangent as I'll uh, be known to do. Um, Green Day, one of the things you capture in your film that I love about them that I think anyone that comes from this area knows is that Green Day isn't a band that grew up on punk and then sold out and became pop. Pop worked against them in that scene. And I love where you're talking about how they could not get booked at Gilman because they were being told they were too poppy. I didn't know that before that same, well, the same kind of thing happened to my band uh, five years later, we were told when we tried to play Gilman, you know, obviously at that time was the big Green Day explosion. So Gilman right. kind of, uh, Gilman and Maximum Rock and Roll, they limited the, the the definition of what was punk because they were trying to, you know, batten down the hatches and put up the walls, you know, like. Which is bullshit, but it comes from a good place. Like you yeah, can get where they're. They're like all these people that used to beat, beat us up in high school are trying to come here now, you know, because they heard right. about it, you know. So it it was a thing. So we tried to play and they said, no, you can't play. You're not punk. You're silly folk, you know, even though you kind of have a punk spirit or whatever. What I didn't know was, and it's it's amazing because I come from the same region as those guys. They were told the same thing in, some, in a similar way. They were told, right. you're too poppy. You can't play. And this is a place for them that they had been going every Friday, Saturday night for, for years. They were so excited about it. They wanted to be a part of it so badly. And here suddenly they're told they cannot do it. So it's, it's funny that the, the sense of ownership that that scene had around them eventually, you know, parting from it and, 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 and going big. 
I always thought it was peculiar that uh, the ba- the backlash that they received, seeing as they were <laughs> they were told they couldn't be a part of it in the first place, you right? Because they were too poppy, and now right. screw you because you're too successful, <laughs> right? And there were you know protests like at the at the the Petaluma, uh, the Phoenix Theater, you know, uh, I think Brian Zero and the band Siren had like a a, a protest when they signed. They had heard the rumor that they had signed had happened, and you know, for for me. I got snuck out of the house in 1992. I went, uh, saw them at Berkeley Square. I had never seen, they started out with going to Pasolacqua. Uh, Here we go again, infatuation. Boom, he hits, he strikes the chord. And I had never seen, the, the room got electric. People started nice. bouncing into each other. I'd never seen that before. I'd never seen, the, you know, I kind of knew about moshing a little bit, but this wasn't really moshing. It was like, it was just exuberance, you know? And I jumped in. I remember wringing my 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 shirt out in the middle of university with my friends. I I ran up to the stage afterwards, and I knew Mike, the bassist from high school, pretty well. And I was like, Mike, that was amazing. You guys are going to be so big. <laughs> Mike's like, Oh, we already are. Yeah. Well, they this was Kerplunk. You know, this was Kerplunk era. You know, okay, so, so they weren't quite cute. Yeah. I mean, we all had Kerplunk out here in Sacramento. The but, writing yeah. was on the wall. They yeah. people, everybody knew they were going to get big. But my first, right. and but I, I don't believe, think anyone knew they were going to get that big. I don't know, man. I mean, I think when I think about Tim Yohannan and Maximum Rock and Roll telling them he, that if it's one thing that people always told me about Tim Yohannan was that he had the ear. He knew music. He okay. Knew, and, you know, it wasn't just about politics with Maximum Rock and Roll. He was a rock and roll fan. And just like Larry Livermore and just like Tim Yohannan, Tim Yohannan, I think, told them they couldn't play because he kind of he heard what I heard. He heard what Larry Livermore heard when he first heard them. Right. Larry Livermore says at Lookout Records, his, his his famous story is that they were playing to these three kids, you know, on a mountain in Humboldt County uh, uh, with like no lights uh, for this crappy show. And they were playing like they were to these three kids, like they were playing to, uh, you know, Shea Stadium, you know. Right. And That's I, great. I felt that, you know, I when I saw them, I was like, my God, what this is. I just immediately felt that. So I know I know a lot of people didn't feel that, but. I'm one of the people who was like, yeah, I saw it. I saw it the first time I saw them, you know, um, Louis Largent, the, the, uh, the, uh, the 120 minutes guy, he's in our movie for a, a second talking about, uh, uh, you know, the MTV guy, you know, talking about when they got big, he says the same thing. When I saw them, it was just, it was like this moment. I was like, oh man, you know, uh, yeah, but yeah. you know, people who grew up with them, you know, you kind of, you went to their early shows, you, you saw them early on. A lot of people was like, eh, you know, they're ours. They're they're not that special, <laughs> you right? Know? Right. You know, so I mean, come on, there's no Operation Ivy. I think that oh. was our like, like if we talked about East Bay Funk, we'd be like, yeah, Green Day's pretty cool. But have you heard Operation Ivy? Uh, like transcendent uh, band, transcendent band. I mean, dude, I, I can't. It, I don't trust a person who who hears Operation Ivy and doesn't immediately get stoked. Right. I just, yeah, I don't know, man. I love that band so much. So great. Uh, you touched on your band and uh, I want to get into that. So yeah. Joe Ebola and the children McNugget. Yeah, Mick, Mick Nuggets. I know you spell it funny. Is that to avoid lawsuits? Yeah, it was like, it was Bobby Joe Ebola and the children McNuggets. And uh, it was like uh, 1990, late 1994. Uh, this girl I had a crush on was having a, a, a show, a birthday party at her house. 
I've, I've was, heard this story. This is true. Right. Yeah, she was lamenting uh, that she didn't have a band to play her party. And I was like, oh, I, I have one. She's like, no, you don't. And I, and I said, uh, uh, and she said, well, okay, if you have a band, uh, you can play. And so <laughs> I, there was this kid that I knew named Dan Abbott who had been kind of wandering around town with his guitar. And I knew he had just gotten out of a band and he had been hanging out at, at our house after school uh, every once in a while. And uh, yeah, he was a junior. I think he, or he was a senior. He was still in high school and I was already out of high school. Okay. And I was like, dude, you want to ha- make a band? And he was like, sure. And <laughs> it was just a horrible first show. We got like pretty much all of our roommates to like dress up in weird costumes and, kind of fart around and just do nothing, nothing that spectacular. And, but it was fun. And that was the point, you know? And, uh, before. That's so great. Yeah. That, it was, so it wasn't just some bullshit you made up for an interviewer. You literally started a band because some yeah. girl was cute. And yeah. She, yeah. And now she's your wife and you guys have a six. No, oh, I wish. Yeah. No, no, uh, see, yeah. that would make the story better. Yeah. Corbett. I know. I know. It didn't happen. No. <laughs> Did you get kisses at least? Not at all. No. Not nothing. No. All right. Well, you got you got Bobby Joe Ebola and the children. McDonald's. I did for for over on and off over twenty five years now. You know. All right. It, it's uh, you know, we were heading to the show. And we were like, I guess we need a name. And Michael Crichton's The Hot Zone had just come out, and it was like Ebola was rampant in the Congo, and we were parked stoned to tears. Is the is the story in the Burger King parking lot, and we, <laughs> I don't know why. I think. There was this thing from Sacramento called um, something. It was like some li- little something, little Joe Joe Holland's uh, something destruction derby or something like that. Okay, and, and I, I I remember seeing it on a placemat, and I always thought about naming a project some kind of kind of absurd long name, and uh, we just came up with Bobby Joey Bola and the children McNuggets, and we misspelt McNuggets. Uh, because people told us you had to have like seven points of difference for copyright reasons. Or okay. Something. <laughs> and uh, so that's how it happened. And and uh, we just, I don't know, we just started recording. Dr. Demento embraced us early on. And then the punk explosion happened. And, you know, it was like, the, you know, Green Day rocketed out of our hometown. And we were like, whoa, that's amazing. They, they, they did that, you know. Right. And then we got keyed into the punk scene eventually. And you know, 2000 shows later, we had just went all over the the United States. We hopped over the the pond once, you know, uh, just, I don't know. It, it, it really, it, it changed us and I don't regret a moment of it. You know, I, I can't explain how many wonderful experiences we've had because of that band. Um, and yeah, you know, not, but not, but a few years ago, we had this goal to make 13 music videos in one year. And that was, obscene and tiresome because we really never had any kind of dedicated label support. So it was all, you know, money we would raise or, or our own money, you know? Right. Uh, so, and then we made the, the hyper ambitious, uh, life is excellent video with director comedian, Alex Cole at the helm. And, uh, that was A- Alex else. Cole. Alex Cole deserves to be a household name. He is beautiful, man. I love that he- man. So funny. We used to have him, Moshe Kasher, and Brent Weinbach. Had boom time. Gr- boom time. They had a group yeah. called Boom Time. That was a, a comedy group, and they would come to Sacramento and do shows with us. <laughs> and uh, 
they're just brilliant. They're so, and he's also super sweet. Yes. Uh, just really so. just a nice guy. The, the video is, I love it. It, I laughed out loud and it's, <laughs> it's anti-consumerist. It's, yeah. it's got a message. It's not, but it's so, and, and the scene that got me, I think was, uh, when the dude gets the hole blasted in his stomach and the cop and then explodes. the rainbow comes out of the hole, <laughs> but then it offs another dude's head. Was the, it a cop's head? The, the rainbow explodes a cop, and the cop explodes into a, a candy confetti, like p- p- pinata. <laughs> yeah, that's the point where my wife's like, "What are you watching?" Because I'm laughing out loud. <laughs> so good. <laughs> that's all. I mean, that's all out of Alex's brain. We 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 worked with him some, but. You know, we I think we had a hundred people out in this field in Petaluma. Oh yeah, the video is a, an absolute who's who of Bay Area comedy. Is it David Jabori, uh, Caitlin Gill, Kevin Kamia? Uh, yeah, am I saying his name right? Yeah, I think uh, Kamia. Yeah, I'm just Kamia, sitting there picking yeah. out comedian after comedian. Uh, Sean Keen. So, Sean Keen. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing Sean in there. Uh, that was a blast. Uh, a little mad. A little mad I'm not in the video. I'll give Alex a call when this is done. Do. Or, you know, send him a Facebook. <laughs> Alex, I know you knew me at the time. I, I brought know. you to Sacramento, you son of a bitch. Dang it. Sucker. <laughs> he, he wound up doing an animation for with Tim Armstrong. Tim Armstrong had uh, 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 an animation studio in Los Angeles. And oh, Alex cool. is living in Los Angeles. So I was like, Alex, I know you animate. Can you come onto the film and help work on animation for turn it around and he did and he was he worked on animation for the film for about a year and a half oh that's great Uh, the last time i ran into him was in new york actually i thought he was living there uh he was he was for a while okay yeah and and then uh now he's been in la i think for about three years i think oh very cool but yeah i i got to hang out with him once in new york i love that he was he was like our, our 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 friend you know who 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 got who came out of the punk scene who like first got into comedy and actually started really getting shows you know so we were so proud and happy for him and then he had us open for him with dj real and i think mary van note and a few other people uh, at the punchline for his hello wizard cd release party (laughs) and And that's yeah the the punchline is like the preeminent club that and cobbs yeah. Uh, in San Francisco. The punchline is also sort of the gatekeeper club to yeah. the comedy scene. So uh you guys occupy an interesting space between music and comedy. How'd things go for you in a comedy venue? It didn't go well. I I, I you know, we were so I think used to punk clubs and right. you know, uh you know, traditionally we've been a duo, a two piece duo, an acoustic duo. This is before Flight of the Concourse, before Tenacious D all of this stuff we've been doing this for this long. And, right. You know, uh, are then, you bitter? Nah. <laughs> Maybe a little, a little touch, a hint of I mean, bitterness. It, it's, it's funny because people talk about those groups and we're like, you know, we, we even did the whole like posturing about rock and roll thing too. Right. That, you know, and, and, uh, but you, you know, I mean, we're not the first, you know, musical comedy duo, you know, in the world. For you sure. Know? It's like, yeah, yeah. you know, so yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, we, we uh, like seriously, you know, we 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 made the transition to play. I would say about 
100 to 200 of our shows as a full electric band opening okay. up for bands like you know negative land or green day or you know we wow so we would do that stuff occasionally as a full band but mostly we played over a thousand shows as an acoustic duo so here we were trying to be like as loud or as as engaging as these like full electric you know bands and here we go to a to the punchline which is like you know it's a it's a comedy club and you know our pacing everything is kind of timed and and, and and a lot of times rehearsed you know and right. our songs are obviously we just it just was like weird crickets man i can't i can't <laughs> it was i felt so bad for alex you know we we did not do well you know so oh, i was great. i was bummed i was bummed <laughs> i was seriously bummed but i you know, I know yeah. that feeling so well yeah. uh and but you also know that other comedians just love hearing a good bombing story. <laughs> I know. I mean, we, I, I think we were trying to, to, to engage with people too much. And I don't know if people want to see one person get engaged with, they want to see a, a, right. a foil or something at a comedy club, right? They want to see you tear apart, you know, a, a, a heckler or something, you know, they don't want you to like, grab the whole room kind of i i, I right. don't know what we were trying to do but i mean it's not like we have played other comedy shows and done well you know we played for uh what ed krasnick <laughs> do you know that name ed uh like the at the throckmorton theater in in uh mill valley with like mort saul I, and like i, I love i love the throckmorton yeah like we played there we did really well you know cool cool yeah, I mean, you know, it's like also older folks and but you know, we 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 jumped we put our foot into comedy sometimes and uh you know, like I said, you know, I think it was so funny originally getting embraced by Dr. Demento. I remember yeah. we were on tour and we were playing these like really like cool punk and rock clubs in Los Angeles and then we got asked to be on uh I'm friends with him to this day, but this guy who called himself Chris Waffle and okay. he was this, he was this really big guy on uh, Long Beach Radio who had, had like a Hawaiian shirt and a kazoo. He, at the time, he was like this huge dude and and uh, just this wacky. He's like, it's the Chris Waffle Show, and like he heard us on the <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It was super wacky, and he had us on because he had heard about us from Demento. But here right. we were surly hung over from the punk show the night before and thinking to ourselves my god we're gonna stay virgins if we if we continue on this circuit you know right like, like this is <laughs> like i don't know we thought you know the the kazoo and uh the kazoo circuit is not really gonna do we're not gonna do well <laughs> here you know uh we so want, you had him join your band no no we we <laughs> We want, I don't know if it's that we wanted to be cool so much because I don't think we ever really cared about that, but we didn't, we didn't want to, uh, we you weren't wacky, looking for wacky. Here's, here's what it is. It's like, I love Weird Al to dear death. He is one of my top five favorite musical artists ever. Okay. But, but there, there is a certain thing where we started kind of, as we got, as we got, as we evolved, we became more political. We became more kind of conscious and dark and as the world got stranger and darker. So it was right. always, always still satiric and humorous and things like this, but it got less wacky and more like more just, I don't know, uh, dark, I guess. And 
So we, we, it was like, you're, I see you're talking to me. Like you think we're like, you know, um, Barnes and Barnes or something, but we're, we're really uh, like, we think we're like Zappa or something, you know? Right. Like we, it was, I don't know, you know, you're some, when you're young, you're headstrong a little bit, but I look back on it. I'm like, my God, I'm so grateful to the doctor, you know, like that's the coolest thing in the world. I love saying, you know, he embraced us and gave us so much support early on. Uh, but oh. we wanted to play the the wacky shows, you know? <laughs> right. And what I loved about Dr. Demento that I think not everyone got because a lot of people did just get the wacky aspect of it, but he always featured a lot of stuff that was a little bit dark or a little Dude. bit edgy. Camper Van Beethoven is one of my favorite bands of all time. And I owe Dr. Demento for turning me onto them. Dude, our, take our, the skinheads bowling. Completely. Our, 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 the first time we got played on that show, we were in a, bra- uh, a bracket with Steve Martin's King Tut, Shell Silverstein, nice. Someone Ate the Baby. Uh, <laughs> I think it was like Zappa and They Might Be Giants he would play. And yes. like, so we were, I was, again, I was so stoked to be played on that show along with all the wacky fair. But there right. was the, 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 the circuit was a little like, we were like, oh no, we can't, we can't get stuck here, you know? Uh, so I don't know if it was good or bad that we kind of were divergent from that, but uh, yeah, I, I, and I wish that we would have, you know, we even got, we, we uh, signed to rooftop comedy eventually. Uh, right. And it, that was, uh, they did a live album with us uh, at the, at different first studios with, with Dominic Del Bene and, and uh, you know, I don't think we, we, we failed in the comedy realm, but uh, we certainly, we certainly didn't do super well, I guess. <laughs> I think, I think it's cool though, when you have something that's hard to find a place where it fits, cause that means you're doing something different, you know, we were like, trying, I yeah. don't know. I did, I did a couple of different experimental things in comedy. And even now with, with venturing into the storytelling, I will get people that go up and tell me that I don't belong at whatever venue I'm at, you right. know? Um, I remember early on when I was more Andy Kaufman influenced, a woman said, what you do is fine, but you shouldn't do it at comedy clubs. And I was just like, yes. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> that was yeah. the best compliment, you know. And so now, even now, people are like, you're not really a stand-up, you're a storyteller. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> you know? Even those shows where you, where you bomb, you're, you're going you're gonna to grab a couple people who, who get what you're doing, you know? Dude, that that's the best when you, I mean, you know, bombing's the worst, but when then you go outside and two people come out to talk to you, cause they're like, Oh, f- f- screw the headliner. They're so hokey. You were rad. And you're yeah. like, okay, cool. Okay, cool. I'm building my audience. Two people sure. at a time within the next 130 years, I should be huge. I'll be- <laughs> we reached <laughs> I'm a right crescendo. On track. I mean, we, by, by like 1999, we started become we, for being cast out of Gilman, we had become Gilman headliners, you know? So we actually started right. getting this like weird cachet of like, of, of fans and packed houses. And, and, and I don't know if we knew how to deal with it. We were so used to being the comedy band. We were so used to being, you know, two guys, you know, where people are setting up around us and pulling out our, our acoustic guitar cord while they're setting up their drum set, you know? And, right. and, and so when we finally start getting popular by, by 1999, 2000, uh, we're, we're getting label interest. We didn't really know how to navigate that. And we wound up dissolving and taking a hiatus because we, we didn't know how, I don't think we knew how to accept, um, acceptance, <laughs> you know? Oh man, why didn't uh, you just hit up your friends in green day? <laughs> they had be they like, guys, got, how do you do this? They, well, you know, they had, they were really supportive early on. They would come to 
when Gilman told us we couldn't play, we got a generator and went out to a toxic Superfund site in Richmond, California on the beach. And we set up our own monthly festival, which right. yeah, Geek Fest, right? So, uh, and then they would come out and, you know, they would come back and say, you guys are like the new punks. And we're like, tell Gilman that, you know, like, and they're like, no, you're really, you guys are, you're, they were proud of us and they were, they were encouraging of us and always supportive oh, of great. us. Especially I'd say Mike and, uh, Mike and Trey, they, they have a lot of comedy songs themselves. Like you heard uh, all by myself at the end of, uh, of Dookie or dominated love slave on Kerplunk, uh, right. we were right up their alley, you know? So those guys were always coming to our shows and super supportive and Billy was supportive too. Uh, but you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think, I don't also too, those guys would go on a, an album uh, circuit and they would be gone for, you know, two years, you know, kind of in, in, in that realm. So, right. Would, no, I, yeah. just to not be misunderstood. I didn't mean call them for help, but I meant they certainly figured out how to handle being successful yeah, <laughs> and transitioning sure. into that attention. Although, you know, they do. They mentioned in the documentary that it was it was actually hard for them as well. And there's this point where it's like you're called a sellout and you're called, you know, you're accused of betraying something. I'll tell you this from from the interviews that I had with them and just talking with them as friends. It was heartbreaking on a lot of levels Yeah, because they yeah. were they this is what people don't get. They are really a punk band from the punk scene, you know. They're, they're not from a scene where it means a lot, where it's a philosophy, a way of living. Yeah, it was. And, and, you know, eventually, you know, sometimes it took decades, but there was healing and there was people who said, I don't know why I was so, you know, combative against the success. And then there's, like I said, there's healing and renewal of old friendships. And, and I think a lot of that happened with our film, to be honest, because um, what is it? Uh, Sam McFeeters uh, wrote a book called Mutations, where he uh, does a chapter about Green Day. <laughs> and at the end of it, he ta- <laughs> he mentions our film and he says, I-, I don't get this. You haunt me in the liquor store. You haunt me in the, you know, in the, uh, you know, over the speakers in the grocery store. Right. And you're this, you're this corporatist monolith. And then you make a movie that shows me not only that you understand the punk scene, but that you care about it and you actually make me believe that you do. How is that fucking fair? Right. You you know, and I think when I read that, I was like, I did it. I, you know, like that's great. That was, we did it. You know, they, they, it, it, uh, that's one of the things I wanted to convey was that those guys, uh, those guys are, are are punk to the core, and they're they're true blue. I think you need to do the Huey Lewis documentary next. Ah, oh, man, I would I would die. I would. If, I, if anyone listening is willing to put up the funding, please get a hold of us. <laughs> I would like to be involved. Please, we, we it, it was birthed here, man. Like it, it was. <laughs> I got to shake his hand one time. It was at a Green Day show, actually. Uh, Billy Joe's sister Marcy. This is like nineteen ninety seven or eight or something like that. And they were playing the shoreline and Marcy runs up to me. She's just this down chick, man. She's so cool. And she's like, Corbett, man, dude, Huey Lewis is in that porta potty. And I'm like, (laughs) 
And I'm like, what? Are you kidding? You're not, are you kidding me? He's, she's like, no, just stand there. Huey Lewis does not poop in porta potties. Dude, I don't even know. Uh, and he walked out, you know, and, and, uh, and the heart of rock and roll, man, there he was. And <laughs> I just started blathering. Mr. Lewis, dude, I, I, I even bought Perfect World now. Oh, you know, like I, 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 your later album, Perfect World. I bought. I was going on and on about how much I love him and about, uh, and uh, he's with his kids who were there to see Green Day. And nice. And as I'm talking to him, Live 105 comes up to him with a camera, which is weird because they're a radio station, right. and they're and they're like. Uh, Trey, Trey at this point is destroying his drum set and lighting it on fire, which he did during that tour. I think it was the, uh, maybe it was the Nimrod tour, I believe. Okay. Uh, and, <laughs> and she says, Mr. Lewis, can you tell me, uh, what, what you think about what you see in front of you? Um, you know, what, what do you think about this Green Day performance? And here's Trey, like holding aloft a flaming, you know, drum, you know? <laughs> <laughs> kick drum you know and he just looks at the the uh, the 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 performance and he looks at the camera and he goes interesting that's what nice. he said. that's all he said i was like oh man this is i'm and i sat there and i just continued to talk to him he was very kind uh but straight up man i i, sure. I think i i was joking earlier but no the, the huey lewis podcast huey cast will be born he's having a renaissance right now man he, it's but weird. He, he's losing his hearing, right? He's, he's yeah. had to cancel a tour. Yeah, he, he did. Uh, but, but I think that they, they navigated somehow a new album, I think, okay. in, in, in the past year. I don't know how it happened or, uh, but, you know, and so with that, he like went on Questlove's podcast. He went on like, he's, he's doing, he, he's, he's doing the circuit, you know, and it's nice to see that there's like this Huey appreciation thing kind of going on right, right. now, you know, Be, <laughs> beyond, beyond just the scene in uh, American psycho. Oh yeah, of course. Have you seen his lampooning of that scene with weird Al? It's so it's so great, dude. It's just so self-aware. I love God. I'm sorry. Talking too much no, about Huey. I love, I love it. it. <laughs> I, I like to, I like to get people on and find their passion. You it's, know? The, it's the punkest <laughs> thing in the world, you know, like, yeah. let me, uh, let me t- let me talk to you about one more thing you're passionate about, and sure. then uh, and then we got to start wrapping up. Uh, you and I are both very excited for the upcoming Sparks documentary. Oh, dude, what a band! What a band! Uh, my wife took me out for my birthday to uh, Millennium, the vegan Michelin star rated restaurant in uh, in Oakland. It's incredible. Nice. Our waiter. Looked like young Ron male, like, <laughs> like he was doing an impersonation. And and at one point he goes to take the order of the table next to me. And I thought she said she wasn't ready, but instead she said she was ready. So thinking she said she wasn't ready, I go, oh, hey, can I get an espresso? Because I want to grab him before he leaves. And he gives me this side eye look that sent chills down my spine because I felt like I was in a Sparks video. And I made my poor wife, it was my birthday, so I got to choose. I made my poor wife listen to Sparks all the way home. I was uh, like, baby, we're listening. we just spent the night hanging out with Ron Mayall and he gave us free dessert. We're listening to Sparks. That's amazing. Dude, I, I love so much. You know what? I, one of the coolest things I noticed is, um, I think it's the I Believe in Miracles Ramones video. Uh, they're, they're listing all of these really influential bands on them. Okay. They list Sparks. 
And nice. a lot of people don't know that about that band, but they were, they were embraced by punks too, you know, like, right. I, oh God, I love them so much, man. Uh, number one song in heaven, a Mickey Mouse, yeah. happy hunting ground. I mean, Dude, just I, so yeah. delightfully weird. And I, you know, I remember yeah. as a kid getting turned on to them during their, their brief moment when they were having some MTV daylight on them. They did a song with one of the go-go's. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> was that cool places? I think so. Yeah. Um, and as soon as I saw them, I went, what the hell is this? Yeah. It was one of those moments, kind of like the first time I heard Camper and Beethoven where I was like, Oh, there's more to this story. And I started digging, Fantastic. Yeah. We're that getting that this year. Great. Edgar Wright, I think it's going to be, they say it's going to be in theaters. Uh, okay. Uh, I've seen the trailers. Yeah, it looks fantastic. But there's also, th- there's that uh, I am a cliche about polystyrene. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Sex. But I have no idea. It's, you know, British. I have no idea when it's coming here. I think that I I, uh, I donated to the Kickstarter for that. And, and Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know when it's 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 it is coming out this year also the phil linnett documentary uh that's only in ireland right now but it's like the definitive uh i'm a big thin lizzie fan and okay that's coming out too so uh listen if yeah. if uh if you as a kickstarter supporter get i am a cliche before it's otherwise available yeah Please have me over. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. That's all I wanted. I did this whole podcast. I don't even mean this episode. I started it all to get that kind of opportunity. You got uh, it. I'm so, so glad that you spent this time with us. I really appreciate it. And it was this great. Remember last time I was supposed to just watch the the, the film clips you had and interview <laughs> you a little bit for my book. And, yeah. you know, hours later, we had just been swapping stories. Uh, it's fantastic <laughs> talking with you, Keith. Thank you so, so much. much fun. I'd like to go out on uh, on uh, Life is Excellent. Yeah. And this this is like when we play the – oh, and, and real quick, tell people where they can find you. I, people should go watch uh, Turn It Around, the story of East Bay Punk, and they should check out Bobby Joe Ebola and the children McNuggets. Uh, where's the best place to go find all things Corbett Redford? For the documentary, East Bay, eastbaypunk.com, uh, and for the band, bobbyjoeebola.com. Awesome. And then you're on the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams. We'll list all that on uh, our various socials when we post the episode. So set us up. What should they know going into Life is Excellent? It is a a song that was written about our hometown of Pinole. Per capita, growing up, there was more fast food here than anywhere uh, in in Northern America. Uh, And (laughs) so the cheesy orange smell line was kind of about all the the wafts of fast food that kind of come out of this place called Fitzgerald Plaza. Um, I think it's really about uh, choosing to live in a dying world, you know, choosing to live your best life and and to do your best to try to find uh, positivity in a world that seems to be crumbling around you. So awesome. That positive and, note. <laughs> and go look up the video. It's so much fun. Uh, so here is Bobby Joel Ebola and the children McNuggets. Well, that's a mouthful. With Life is Excellent, I've been your host, 
Keith Lowell Jensen. My producer is Joe Honor. Original art done by Joe Honor. And our editor and audio engineer is Jack Matrenga. Joe and Jack are with Hyperpixel, a production company with a focus on digital marketing and e-commerce, offering daily management of your website, social media accounts, and digital marketing campaigns. Our original theme song, as we mentioned, is by DJ Real. Once again, thanks to our sponsor, Burley Beverages. KLJ Rules will get you 15% off at BurleyBeverages.com. And if you haven't already, go watch my comedy special, Not For Rehire, on Amazon Prime and leave a review. All right, subscribe, review to our podcast, tell a friend. Life is excellent.